The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. And my title is uh, What Paul Really Wants for the Church. What Paul Really Wants for the Church. And I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter 2, Colossians. For I want you to know uh, how, sorry, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul packs a lot in, doesn't he, to short paragraphs. He really packs in the words. Uh, But these are my five headings. First of all, number one is Paul's struggle. The second one is encouraged by loving community. The third heading is grasping the mystery together. Fourth is the treasures of Christ. And number five, plausible arguments void of Christ you know in life there are some things that I don't think you fully appreciate until later in life sometimes years later it's as if there has to be a chunk of time between the present and the past for us to realise how significant something was from our own history so I, I imagine if I was to ask around this room this morning there would be many people who were raised in a Christian home uh, and in the church, uh, for whom uh, they would be deeply thankful for their heritage. But often it takes uh, the years to pass to really appreciate how special and important that heritage was. So I'm in that category. Uh, I didn't go to some posh private school like some of my friends did. My parents never had much money. My dad was a preacher and a pastor. And my parents weren't perfect by any means, which parents are. And we never had a television. Do you remember those things, televisions? Uh, but I, looking back, I think I had a rich heritage. So I was raised in a family with Bibles in the home. And in the church, I heard scripture being read and taught from a very young age. And I was expected to learn memory verses. And for nine years of my childhood, we lived in Christian community. And whereas other children at my school went home to eat their fish sticks and their fries and sit watching television for the evening, I went home to sit at a huge dining table with all kinds of interesting people sitting on my left or my right, often missionaries or believers from some far-flung locations in the world. And I heard their stories, people from Hong Kong or Germany or Brazil. And later on in that community, I met my lovely wife, Julie. So from, the point is that from a young age, I witnessed people who were uh, part of the fellowship of believers. Uh, and very frequently into my home, my dad, as I said, was a pastor. We had people who came who were addicts. We had people who were mixed up in witchcraft. 
Uh, there were people who were troubled by demons who came into our home. And not in every case, but in many cases, I saw lives radically transformed by the power of the gospel. And most summers, uh, I stood uh, among a thousand people in a huge marquee uh, in the English countryside. And we sang the great Christian hymns of the faith. And I learnt the words of those great hymns. And I remember the presence of the Holy Spirit so powerfully working among us. And on those nights and through the years I sat under the preaching of great, uh, of men with great authority. And it kind of left me with a sense of awe, uh, a holy fear that God is real, that he is great and that I am small, that God is to be reckoned with. Uh, and in those, but in those days I was confronted with eternity, with heaven and hell, uh, with the narrow gate to life and the wide gate to destruction. And also the bloody cross of Jesus Christ where I was forgiven and reconciled to God. I'm so thankful that I was confronted with all the big and most important matters of all from a very small age. You see, I thank God that I was raised in a Christian home and I was raised in the church. And this is my point, that my life has been characterized by a growing realization of the significance and importance of the church of Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the Colossians and also to the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, can be thought of as twin letters. They should be thought of as twin letters. Uh, And the Ephesians and Colossians should be read side by side. And broadly speaking, Ephesians concerns the church of Jesus Christ and Colossians concerns the Christ of the church. You see, Christ and his church are inseparable. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. And even though we're in Colossians this morning, this morning's text concerns both the church and Christ. And it concerns what Paul really wants for the church and what Christ uh, must be to the church. Now I find it really interesting that the greatest theologian of the Bible, who I think must be the Apostle Paul, uh, was never kind of confined to his study. Uh, He was a man of action. Uh, He was on the road. He was an evangelist. He was a pastor. uh, And he made three great missionary journeys, taking the name of Christ before the Jews, the Gentiles, and the the kings of the Gentiles, as was his commission when he was met on the Damascus Road. And Paul crosses the sea. uh, He crosses marshes and mountains and plains. And he preaches uh, Jesus Christ as the truth about the universe in city after city across the Greco-Roman world what we call the ancient world, and the gospel made its mark. The theologian Tom Wright uh, says something like this. He He says in one of his commentaries that whenever Paul preached, afterwards there was either a riot or a revival. And then he says, whenever I preach, afterwards people serve me lovely cups of English tea. And then he says, are we preaching in the right way? But the point is that the, the, uh, Paul, the, the theologian, was on the road. He, was, he, he preached great theology. He wrote amazing and remarkable letters of theology and pastoral, uh, um, pastoral care, I suppose, in his letters. And it kind of persuades me that we, we think our greatest thoughts in the rigors of life, in the fires of suffering, not in the place of calm and tranquility. Although, of course, calm and tranquility, those times are important as well. But as Paul travels, churches are born across the Roman Empire. So here's my first heading, Paul's struggle, in verse 1. For I want you to know 
how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Lady Asia, and for all who have not seen me face to face. So the year is about 62 AD, and Paul is writing from prison. Most likely he's in prison in Rome. And he's in the midst of this great struggle. Struggle's not very good, really a very good translation here because the word is really agony or anguish uh, that Paul identifies about himself. He's in this great moment of anguish. And the word is for agony is the same word that is used of Jesus in his anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross. That's the kind of weight of the word. But what is Paul's struggle? Well, it's for the believers in Colossae and also Lady Asia, which is about 12 miles down the valley from Colossae. Now, these aren't Paul's converts. And in this letter, we discovered that they'd actually heard the gospel from Epaphras, who was probably a convert himself of Paul. But nevertheless, Paul has heard about the difficulties of the believers in Colossae and Lady Asia, and he's exercised to do something, so he writes to them. So for Paul, once a church has been established, he doesn't forget it. Although he was an evangelist, he never forgets the believers that he knew that Christ had given him responsibility for. Now, I think that there, were, there are two types of, of evangelists that you find. Those who plough the seed and scatter, and those who plough the seed and oversee its growth. And the second type of evangelist, they want uh, people to come to faith, but they also want to ensure that they remain in the faith. In the uh, 18th century, what we, know as, what we know as the great evangelical revival in England and also wider than that in Great Britain, uh, there were two evangelists who roamed the land and the names were George Whitfield and John Wesley. Now, Whitfield was an orator. He was a kind of classic orator. Before he became a Christian, he thought he was going to be an opera singer, I think, uh, but he was a powerful preacher. And when Whitfield preached in the open air, people said you could hear him a mile away if the wind was blowing in the right direction. He had this incredible voice. And he led thousands of people to accept Christ as their saviour. And then he moved on to the next place and preached again. And many people were, uh, came to Christ. But John Wesley, with the help of his brother Charles, they also travelled the land. I think uh, Wesley covered thousands and thousands of miles on his horse. And he witnessed thousands of people come to Christ. And the history books tell us that uh, at this time, after the, this great awakening, uh, that numerous um, bars and pubs, public houses, were, were, went out of business. Uh, wives found that they suddenly had money to spend on food because their husbands weren't drinking it all away. In towns, the courts had no co uh, cases to hear because people weren't committing crimes anymore. And chapels were built all over Great Britain by the thousand, and very likely Britain was spared a kind of French-style revolution. But as well as being an evangelist, and kind of in a way which is unlike Whitfield, John Wesley was a genius at organisation. So uh, Wesley sought out the converts, and he built them into little cells of twelve, and he called them class meetings. And he also put these class meetings into, group, into larger sort of families of Christians, and he called them societies. You see, John Wesley knew the importance of Christian community uh, where people could be built up in the faith. Now, John's brother, Charles, who was also a very powerful preacher, but he composed over 6,000 hymns in his lifetime. If you work out how many he composed every week, it's quite an amazing number. Uh, so we sing, and can it be, of course, and oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, love divine, or love's excelling all uh, Charles Wesley's hymns. 
But he wrote these hymns not just because he was poetic and musical, but because the Wesley brothers knew that their new converts needed good theology. And many of them were illiterate. And they decided that the best way to teach these converts theology was to teach them hymns full of theology. But the point is that wherever he could, John Wesley kept up with his converts and he visited them, he shepherded them. And interestingly, at the end of his life, Whitfield wrote to Wesley and included in his letter these words. He said, my rope is a rope of sand. You can't even get hold of it. It's a rope of sand, he said. You have built the converts up. Now, Paul was a Wesley evangelist, or Wesley was a Paul evangelist, we should say. And here in our text, we find that he's, uh, we find that he's heard that some believers are in difficulty. And he wants to do something. The thing that strikes you is that he's involved in the lives of other people, even while he's in jail. Now, I've never been to jail. They never want to go. But when things don't work out as we would like them to do, there's a danger that we can only think about our own situation when things go wrong for us. And we kind of have a private pity party for ourselves. But Paul's not like that. He's looking outwards to the work that Christ has given him to do, which is to care for the churches. And he hears about their troubles and he longs to restore them and to get them back onto a firm foundation. And since he can't be with them physically, he writes to them. He says, I'm struggling for you. Now, Paul's struggle is almost certainly a struggle of prayer. So in prison, he lifts his heart to God for the believers. And as he does, he tells us what he's praying for, for these believers in uh, Colossae and Laodicea. And here's the first thing that he's struggling for. This is my second heading that they may be encouraged um, by loving community. That's that's my second heading, that they may be encouraged within loving community. So in verse 2 he writes, their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. Now, as you will no doubt all know, and you find this out once you get to about 12 months old, that life is not always easy. In fact, life can be profoundly discouraging. And if things happen as they're supposed to do, the longer that you live, the more compassion you develop for others because you learn that life can throw all sorts of challenges your way that you never expected. So sickness can come, parenting struggles, a child with challenges, uh, marriage up and downs, uh, money struggles, bereavements, unemployment... Tensions within the church, as is probably the case here. The list is endless. All kinds of circumstances can result in deep discouragement in life. And the source of encouragement that Paul is desiring for these believers is the encouragement that comes from belonging to a loving fellowship in in which people are welded together in love. When people share life together. When the strong carry the weak. When the ones who have been on the journey longer advise and support the strugglers and those new to the faith. How many Christians fall or struggle because they stand alone? But how much better to be part of a body of people who really love one another and care for one another, who really watch out for one another. 
And as we share life together as believers, it's as if our problems seem less that we carry our burdens collectively. And we soon realise that we're not the only ones who are experiencing struggle. I think so often Satan wants us to think that the struggle that we have is we're the only person who's encountering that struggle. But when we talk to other people and we live in fellowship, we realise that we're not the only one, that other people are going through the same kind of thing as we are. And as we do share our struggles together, then bonds are forged that are rich and deep. You know, I think one thing that I've learned through life is that good Christian friendships will get you through life. And without them, you can fall apart. You can die spiritually. We need Christian fellowship. So Paul is talking about Christian community. Now, I'm not sure that we're that good at Christian community anymore. I'm talking about Christians generally where I... uh, Perhaps Christians in the Western world anyway. I think that there's a danger that Christians increasingly are retreating into their private family arrangements where the priorities are piano and dance and Boy Scouts and homework. It's a kind of middle-class curse. I don't have any easy answers to this, and my kids do lots of stuff too, and both Julie and I feel like taxi drivers for half the week, taking our kids to all sorts of places. But I I think that those kind of activities that that our kids do, they shouldn't sap our time too much, um, and they shouldn't be at the expense of real Christian community. I've got a pastor friend in England, he's a pastor now, and he told me that when he was first converted, well, first of all, he he told me that his experience in this area of of church community has been one of of constantly lowering lowering his expectations of what he could expect from the church. So this friend of mine became a believer in in a working class church in a, a rough part of Manchester in the north of England. And he said to me that with that church, it was just normal to call in on people and be welcomed. Uh, you could just knock on somebody's door in the church and they would open the door and, you, and you'd say, I just want to come and chat. And they'd say, great, come in. Um, and he said, in those days, people just took you as they found you. And you took them as you found them. So you didn't expect a house to be perfectly tidy or expect three delicious meal courses to be on the table ready to be served with napkins and candles Uh, and have the best coffee to finish the evening. There was a kind of relaxed attitude about fellowship in that church that he was first in, first converted in. But later he said that he left that church and joined a middle-class church full of professional people. And he said one day he asked somebody if his family could meet up with their family. Uh, And he said when that happened, they took out their diary and they said, you know, we just might be able to squeeze you in in about three months' time. You know, one of the saddest things that you hear is when you meet somebody and they say, I went to a church, or went to church, and nobody talked to me. I've heard that several times when I was a pastor. I heard it a few times, and it really grieved me that that could happen. And you know, sometimes I think that Christians need lessons on basic social skills. I can't tell you how many times um, I've met somebody for the first time and asked, I asked them about their lives. Where are you from? Do you have children? What kind of work do you do? Uh, were you raised in the church? That kind of stuff where you explore somebody's biography. And at some point I pause and I wait for them to ask me questions back. And I'm amazed how often it doesn't happen. And occasionally I say to somebody now, this is the point where you ask me questions. You see, relationships, 
Relationships have to be reciprocal. They, they, that's how they work. And I'm thinking to myself, how can you get to 40 years old and not know that? And I mean this, I think many Christians need to learn basic social skills. How you talk to people, explore their lives, show interest in people. You know, people are interesting. I hope you find people interesting. If you just find yourself interesting, there's something seriously wrong with your life. Uh, Explore people's lives. It's such an important skill to learn. I remember Don Carson, the uh, Canadian theologian, he said, the most useful people in the kingdom are those people who can talk to anybody. That's really good advice. Francis Schaeffer, who I'm studying for my PhD, he said, always make time for people. He said, don't see people as an interruption, but they are the main thing that you are to be doing and be involved with. So that's Paul's first struggle. It's what he wants for the church, and it would be for us as well, that believers would be encouraged by being in a loving fellowship. So Paul can't be there, but they can encourage encourage one another. And it's a vital part of what the church should be. My third heading is grasping the mystery together. Grasping the mystery together. So Paul's next struggle, and these are the struggles of prayer, and we're listening to his uh, desires for the church as we listen to what he's praying for. Uh, his next struggle uh, builds upon the first one, and uh, which is that believers be knit together in love. But he wants them to collectively realise God's mystery for the church. So uh, in uh, verse two, he says to reach that believers would reach the riches of the full assurance of un- a full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul wants them to be rich in their, in their, the believers to be rich in their understanding of truth, but not only to know the truth, but to be, become firm and secure in their understanding, so that knowledge, that truth isn't just knowledge, but it becomes deep, rich understanding that undergirds lives, that's what he's talking about here, and strengthens us in difficulties. And he wants the believers to know God's mystery, which is Christ. You know, in the Bible, a mystery has a very particular definition. It's not something that's inaccessible to our understanding. A mystery in Scripture is something which has always been there, it's always been true, but it has to be revealed to us to know it. And you find Paul's mystery in the previous chapter. The mystery that he's talking about is that Christ is the saviour and he's the hope, not just for Jewish believers, but for Gentile believers as well, that Gentiles and Jews are joint partakers of the new covenant and of salvation. They both make up the one church of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was called to proclaim, that Gentiles are co-heirs with the Jews in the gospel. Now, you might not think that's a big deal in our kind of inclusive, egalitarian age where everybody must be equal, otherwise it's a kind of scandal. It's like a hate crime if people aren't equal. Um, But you've got to remember that for the Jews, they had a long time believing that the Gentiles of the world were there. They were powerful, the Romans and other uh, Gentiles were powerful, but all the time the Jews had their own dignity. They were a unique people of God. And many of them believed that God only created the Gentiles to provide fuel for the fires of hell. The Gentiles were the outsiders. They were the great unwashed of the world. They were the dogs. They called them dogs, the Gentile dogs. They were without hope and without God in the world. But now, and this is Paul's mystery that he proclaims in the churches, 
God has brought both Jew and Gentile together into the church of Jesus Christ. And he says, Christ in you, all of you, Jew and Gentile, the hope of glory, in chapter 1, verse 27. Now remember that the context here is unity and mutual encouragement. And I suspect that there were divisions in the church between Jewish believers, those who had been Jewish, and the Gentile believers. And so the mystery is that Christ is in every Christian. And that's important because Christ in every Christian is what makes the church the church. It's what unites the church together, both Jews and Gentiles. It unites American believers and Thai believers and Chinese believers and Australian believers and Russian believers and Ukrainian believers. Christ is in every believer. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so every time these Christians, I'm thinking about them, every time they looked at a fellow believer in the eye, they were to recognize that Christ was in them. And if that's true, you have an obligation to love them. You are one together in the work. And no one is to be excluded. They were to be united in their corporate participation in Christ. So the Christ in you meets the Christ in, Christ in me meets the Christ in you and shakes hands. That's what my African students used to say when I lived in Uganda. The Christ in me meets the Christ in you and shakes your hand. And you see, many problems arise because we don't see Christ in another person. We just see their problems. Or how annoying they are. But what it means is that you can't keep your distance from a fellow Christian without keeping your distance from Christ, because Christ is in every believer. So they were to encourage one another as they contemplated the mystery of Jew and Gentile together through Christ's saving gift for them both, who is Christ. Through God's saving gift, who is Christ. You see, it is through Christ that Jewish and Gentile believers are destined for the same End, which is glory, Christ in you, the hope of glory. My fourth heading is this, the treasures to be found in Christ. The treasures to be found in Christ. Paul's next desire, as he struggles for them in prayer, is that the believers will be encouraged as they appreciate what it means to know Christ. You know, in this whole letter to the Colossians, Paul is writing to a people who are muddled. And the secret for them to get out of their muddle is for them to obtain a clear view of who Jesus Christ is. It invariably is. If we get Christ clear, everything else becomes clear. It's kind of ironic, really, that you have to be dazzled by Jesus Christ and then you see everything else clearly. Most of the time, when we're dazzled, we can't see things clearly. But if you get dazzled by Jesus, you can see everything else clearly. And he says, uh, God's mystery, Christ, in verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, think of a great treasure chest. And it's all wrapped up with a chain and a padlock on it, a big strong padlock. It's strong and secure, this great chest. And no one can get into it without a key. And inside that chest is all the wisdom... And all the knowledge that you will ever need in this life and the one to come. Now you don't get into this chest by ways that are highly esteemed by the world that we live in. You don't get in by education. 
You don't get in by having lots of degrees. You don't get in by reading books by the experts who tell us how to live today. You don't get in by being rich and bribing your way in or paying your way in. But here's the point that Jesus Christ is the key that opens the chest. He is the access point for all wisdom and knowledge. All you have to do is come to Jesus Christ in repentance and simple trust and confess your need of him and he will open the treasures of himself to you. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I want to give you two examples of how this works out because it can be a bit abstract. What does it mean that in Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found? Let me give you two examples. One from the kind of big canvas of what the world is about and a second one, a more personal, personal example. So the first one is what I'm going to call the treasure of truth that is found in Jesus. The treasure of truth that is found in Jesus. And here's my point. The simplest Christian who knows Christ knows more of real value than the greatest philosopher who's ever lived. You see, it's Jesus Christ who answers the great questions of life. Who am I? What in the world am I doing in this world? What happens to me when I die? Where exactly can I find hope in a world that seems so hopeless? You know, in the end, there were just two days that really matter in our lives. The day that we were born, and the second day is the day that we find out why we were born. And Jesus Christ is the key to both of them. You know, I think we need to teach this to our children, especially our teenagers today, when life can seem so bewildering. That God has birthed them into the world, that he has a plan for their lives, and he's given them, he has work prepared for them to, to further his kingdom. You know, the alternative narrative that we give up, we tell our children, is that their worth and their value, their success, depends upon their academic performance, their charisma, their popularity, or your child's sporting success. It's just such a damaging narrative. You see, it's damaging for the capable ones, the ones who seem to achieve all those things, because they think that worldly success makes them special and important in life. I was thinking as I was driving here, about three or four... Uh, children I knew in Sunday school who were bright and good at everything and they went off and got top degrees from universities and got jobs in big international corporations and I don't think any of them walked with Jesus today. They, they began to think that success was found in money and careers and all those other things. So that, But this whole narrative of value through academic performance and sporting success and popularity It's also damaging for the non-academic ones, the ones who don't seem to do very well, the shy ones, because somehow they think that their life's losers. You see, the problem is resolved in Christ, because knowing him is the key to resolving all of of life's dilemmas in the end. It doesn't happen overnight, but it happens with time. You know, in, in my experience, it's the strugglers, it's the ones who find life difficult that he uses most in the world. It's not the smart and popular ones. So my point is that the simplest Christian who knows Christ knows more of real value than the greatest philosopher who's ever lived. Let me come at this from a different kind of angle. You find some engineer, and he's a clever engineer, but he's an unbeliever. And he's building some complex technology. He knows all about how the 
technology works and he tells you and kind of blows your mind, you don't understand it. But then you ask him what life is for, what his life is for, why he was born, what is a successful life. And if he doesn't know Christ, you're likely to find out that he hasn't got a clue. He has no idea why he's in the world or what life is about. See, this is the tragedy of life without Christ. You see, human beings using their own faculties and investigative powers will never discover the answers to the greatest questions of life. They have to be divinely disclosed than they are in Christ Jesus. You see, in the end, the great problems of this world are not material. They are spiritual. Not that material things don't matter. They're created by God. But in the end, our problems are spiritual. And God has purposed to confound the wisdom of the wise. And he's determined to He's been determined to reveal himself supremely through a bloody cross. You know, no philosopher would would ever make it up that way. You find a worldly philosopher who would make up that God's greatest revelation of himself is in a bloody cross with a man hanging there, nailed to it. But in that we, we see the great heart of God and we interpret God from that point more than any other. It's as a foolishness to the worldly mind, but for those who've had their eyes open, we marvel at the wisdom of God. He confounds the wisdom of the wise. I met a girl the other day who's soon to leave for America to study psychology in a secular college. And of course that's not a bad thing, but she needs to be very careful. You see, psychology, when it works from a purely human foundation, believing that it can understand all human behaviour, Uh, without God, without theology, is deeply flawed. You see, if you try to study human behaviour and you don't factor in the fact that human beings are made in the image of God or that we are sinful or that we are, are idolatrous, that we find false gods, that we were made for worship and we find false gods, if you don't factor in the human God-given conscience, then you will never understand human behaviour properly. You can learn lots of things, but you miss the most important things that matter. You see, it's in Christ that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. And once you understand those things, when you understand that the world has to be interpreted theologically, then you can do your psychology. I was talking to a lady back home uh, in England a few years ago, and she told me that she went to university at the age of 18 in London, and she said a philosophy professor stood up in front of 100 people, and he said that he had one aim, aim in in his philosophy class and that was to destroy everything his students had ever believed and then he said especially if you're a Christian believer and within three weeks she was suicidal now fortunately that lady went on to discover that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and she regained that treasure the treasure of truth and she went on to become a missionary for many years You know, in what we call the Western world, uh, the Enlightenment's take on the world has been running now for about 250 years. It's about 250 years since the Enlightenment. That was fundamentally an attempt by human beings to think that they could devise some grand scheme, this great solution to fix all the problems of the world. That human wisdom alone can build a good world. And then we have the 20th century with its world wars and genocides. But in our generation, we are literally literally living through the collapse of the Enlightenment project. Nations are disintegrating into division. 
We see institutions that have been around for a long time corrupted, universities who are rejecting knowledge for ideology, and all the binaries that we've taken for granted are collapsing, that right and wrong exists, that truth and error exist, that male and female exist, that normal and abnormal exist. All those things, all the binaries are kind of collapsing around us. And now we're confronted by the postmodern idea that you create your own truth. That's all Western philosophy can tell us after 300 years of talking to us, more than that, but modern Western philosophy. All we can do is say, you just have your truth and I have my truth, and you speak your own truth. That's where we are today, and so the result is you find a million voices babbling and talking on social media, the perfect platform for this kind of world where everybody has their opinion And they're all babbling at us and trying to manipulate us and catch our attention. And in the midst of the babble, we turn to Christ and we hear him say, I am the truth about the universe. He who, uh, I am the light of the world. If anyone follows me, he will not walk in darkness. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. This is the treasure of truth that you find in Christ. This is treasure to savour. You see, if you reject Jesus Christ, who is the truth about the universe, in the end, everything else self-destructs. Because you cannot have truth. And without truth, you self-destruct. Every church will self-destruct. And in time, every nation, every culture will self-destruct that it is not founded upon the truth that is in Jesus Christ. In Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see, Christ has explanatory power for the world. He explains the world to us. Praise his name. So that's my big picture example of the truth that's hidden in Christ. Here's my more personal one. I'm calling this the treasure of comfort. You're suffering. You've experienced a bereavement or you've been betrayed by a friend. Or maybe you're struggling as a parent. Where do you turn for comfort? Well, Jesus Christ. He knows all about our suffering. He has suffered more than any of us will ever suffer. He understands. He's become a human being and stood in our place and known rejection and pain and suffering to the greatest degree He is the great comforter. So in Christ you find the comfort that you need. He says, I will be with you always. I will never abandon you, even to the end of the age. So you've got, we have here the treasure of comfort through Christ. We have the treasure of truth and the treasure of comfort. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. My fifth heading, I'm going to stop in about two minutes is this, plausible arguments void of of Christ. Plausible arguments void of Christ. Verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So this is the kind of first hint in the book, in the letter to the Colossians, that there's trouble in the church in Colossae. You can deduce it from other places earlier on, but there's a real sort of clue here that they were having trouble that there were people in the church who were trying to persuade them away from what Paul had taught them 
And the Christians that Paul was writing to were setting aside Christ's wisdom and listening to teachers who sounded plausible and they were leading them astray. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a good argument. But these were plausible arguments that didn't have Christ at the centre of their thinking. So, arguments that don't begin with the message of Jesus Christ as it is revealed in Scripture are always dangerous. Now, if I had time, I could tell you um, about all kinds of alternative renditions of the Christian faith, interpretations of the Christian faith that have arisen over the last 200 years. So, I could talk to you about liberal theology, which kind of came out of Germany in the 1840s. Liberation theology, uh, neo-orthodox theology, emergent theology, very recent. It's interesting when you study them that the thing that they all had in common was that they had very clever people explaining them and plausible arguments, but all of them were an attempt to marry Christianity with the culture. And to do that is always a disaster. And many people are trying to do the same thing today with what we call progressive Christianity. To marry the culture with Christianity. Plausible arguments don't mean that they're right. We always have to begin with Christ as our guide, as our teacher. Everything must be weighed by the truth of Scripture. And then Paul says in verse 5, as I finish, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul cannot physically be with these believers in Colossian Laodicea. But he's with them in spirit. His heart is with them. And all is not lost. Uh, you see him commending them here for their good order and their firmness of faith in Christ. But what this is, this little passage, is it is a window into what Paul wants for the church and the importance of the church. And it's a window into what we should be striving towards as God's people. These things that are uh, important to Paul and important for all churches in all day, in every day, in every generation. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for Scripture. We're grateful that in a world where there are thousands of babbling voices telling us to go this way or that way and to cancel us if we, if we think the wrong thing or Whatever it might be, we thank you that the word of God is to be a light to our feet and a guide to our lives. And this morning as we think about the importance of the church and the importance of this responsibility we have to one another, we pray that these things might shape us, that they might become part of our whole thinking, that we recognize that people are not an inconvenience, but people are the, where the real deal is, where life is, that we are to care for one another, that we are to be brothers and sisters to one another in Christ. And we pray too as we remember the treasures that are in Christ, all the treasures of knowledge, all the treasures of wisdom that are in Christ, we pray that we might save them, that we might rejoice in them, but also that we might be a people who are always alert to sharing them with others in this dark and needy world. Father, be with us and bless us in our singing together and in our fellowship. 
Thank you for the church. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Thank you.